America and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on Venezuela. Our guest is Mr. Leopoldo Lopez, a Caracas-born politician, opposition leader, and former political prisoner. Mr. Lopez served as mayor of the Chacao district in Caracas from 2000 to 2008. He was previously a professor of institutional economy at Universidad Carolico Andres Bello and served as an economic advisor to Venezuela's state-owned oil company. In 2009, he formed the Voluntad Popular, or Popular Will Party, in response to breaches of human rights and freedoms by the Chavez regime. He spent seven years in political prison for his activism and escaped to Spain in 2020, where he currently resides in exile. Mr. Lopez holds undergraduate and graduate degrees in economic and public policy from Kenyon College and Harvard University. Venezuela gained its sovereignty in 1830, following the dissolution of Simón Bolívar's Gran Colombia, and the United States established diplomatic relations with Venezuela five years later. Venezuela's early history saw a series of revolutions and counter-revolutions as regional strongmen, or caudillos, vied for power. The discovery and commercial development of oil in 1914 transformed Venezuela into Latin America's most robust economy. By 1935, Venezuela was the world's largest oil exporter. Unprecedented capital and investment flowed into the country, but military dictators and political elites consolidated the majority of the wealth. Venezuela established its first civilian government in 1945, but experienced continued corruption and violence. In 1958, President Romolo Betancur's election marked Venezuela's first democratic civilian-to-civilian -civilian transfer of power. The price of oil plummeted in the late 1950s, and Venezuela became a founding member of OPEC in 1960. Oil prices quadrupled following the 1973 oil embargo, and Venezuela generated $10 billion in just two years. But multiple Venezuelan leaders embezzled and mismanaged the funds. The Venezuelan economy collapsed in the 1980s. Massive price inflation led to unrest, deadly riots, and failed coup attempts, including one led by a young military officer, Hugo Chavez, in 1992. President Hugo Chavez took office in 1999 on a socialist platform. Most of his promises to help the poor were empty, and his government was filled with corruption and driven by what some have called a cult of personality. Chavez initiated the so-called Bolivarian Revolution and rewrote Venezuela's constitution following a popular referendum in 1999. Chavez's regime eliminated presidential term limits. His social and economic reforms led to a massive humanitarian crisis and violent protests. Chavez's reforms crashed the Venezuelan economy, but Russia, Iran, China, and Cuba 
propped up the Chavez regime with continued investment and trade. Nicolas Maduro assumed the presidency of Venezuela upon Chavez's death in 2013. Maduro's policies accelerated the mismanagement and criminal activity of the Chavez era, prompting the U.S. to sanction Venezuelan leaders for human rights abuses, corruption, and anti-democratic action. Oil prices fell from over $100 per barrel in 2014 to less than $30 per barrel in 2016, and the Venezuelan economy spiraled. It contracted by over 75% from 2014 to 2021. In 2017, Maduro eliminated the Venezuelan Congress and formed a constituent assembly to redraft the Constitution. The United States, European Union, and numerous Latin American countries recognize opposition leader Juan Guaido of Voluntad Popular as the interim president of Venezuela, according to the Constitution. Maduro's illegitimate government has committed politically motivated extrajudicial executions, jailed and tortured opponents, and created a state of emergency. Millions of Venezuelans lack basic health care and nutrition, and millions more have fled to initiate the largest migration crisis in Latin American history. Venezuela is now experiencing the most disastrous peacetime economic collapse the world has witnessed in decades. We welcome Mr. Leopoldo Lopez to discuss the ongoing crisis in Venezuela, the role the authoritarian regimes of Cuba, Russia, China, and Iran play in perpetuating the crisis, and the prospects for restoration of democratic governance under the Constitution and recovery from economic collapse. Leopoldo Lopez, welcome to Battlegrounds. It's great to see you, and I recall fondly you know, your leadership in Venezuela, and I remember we were supposed to have a phone conversation a few years ago, but then you were arrested and imprisoned. So it's wonderful to see you here at the Hoover Institution and at Stanford University. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm very honored to be here and excited to, to share with you. Well, we, we have a, a lot to talk about uh, in connection with Venezuela. It's a, obviously a very desperate situation for the Venezuelan people. You know, seven million refugees now uh, fleeing, uh, fleeing Venezuela. GDP's down almost 90%. Today, Venezuelans in, in what used to be a very wealthy, rich, successful country uh, are now poorer than Haitians. Could you maybe explain to our viewers, you know, how did this happen? How did, how did Venezuela spiral downward under really two uh, authoritarian uh, dictators? Uh, Chavez and, and Maduro. Yes. Well, it's a, it's a 20-year story, but I'll, I'll try to be very brief. Uh, Venezuela, as you said, was uh, a very prosperous nation. Uh, it was an island of democracy in a continent um, that had um, a lot of dictatorships. Um, and it was a beacon of freedom. Uh, of course, we had a lot of problems, like many other countries had, like many other democracies. But at the turn of the century, Venezuelans decided to vote in Hugo Chavez, who was uh, a military who could, uh, who pr promoted um, a military coup during the 1990s. Um, and then he came in with a reform agenda that started with what was a national constituent assembly. And that was the beginning of the end, because that was the beginning of a process to kill democracy from within. This is something that um, happened in other countries in Latin America and elsewhere, which is the undermining of the rule of law, of the autonomy of institutions, of the freedoms that need to um, happen within a democracy, but from within. So this virus um, that was 
inflicted in our institutions at the very beginning of the Chavez era was the beginning of the crumbling of our democracy. Unfortunately for the Venezuelan people, um, it could have been a blessing, but it was unfortunate that the price of oil spiked from $15 per barrel in 2004 to more than $150 per barrel around uh, a period of time of 10 years. And that created a mirage of uh, prosperity and, and a new model of development. And I was really surprised at the time, and even more now looking at hindsight, how observers from outside looked at Venezuela as, 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 a, as an experiment that was worth giving a chance to. You know, a, 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 social, a socialist yeah. paradise. Uh, or, or, you know, a, um, a, a Caribbean democratic experiment or a tropical experiment. Or, but the fact is that for 14 years, um, we didn't identify what was happening in our country as a dictatorship. So there were not even the Venezuelan opposition, and much less the people that were looking at our country from, a, from outside. So there were all these adjectives to what type of democracy we were. We are uh, a declining or weakening democracy, but, or, or whatever, or uh, competitive autocracy, and all of this political science or sugarcoating, uh, not to call you know, the rabbit a rabbit. It was a dictatorship, and it took 14 years for that to, to happen. Um, in, so, so that's um, a, a long period of deterioration that was opaque by this, this mirage, as I said before, of, of uh, prosperity. Uh, but then things completely crumbled. Uh, it crumbled uh, institutionally, legally, politically. But also, during that time, Chavez and then Maduro were able to build a, a, a web of relations with all of those countries that had something in common. They were enemies or declared enemies of the United States and of liberal democracy. So very early in the Chavez years, he started to create uh, an alliance with Russia, with China, with Turkey, with Iran, uh, even with North Korea, of course, with Cuba. Uh, and this gave Chavez and then Maduro mm -hmm. uh, a support system within the international uh, community that, in my view, is one of the main reasons why Maduro is still in power because this support goes way beyond a political support. I mean, this is a support that gets translated into financial uh, support, military equipment, military intelligence, diplomatic support, right. uh, energy assistance. Uh, and that is one of the main reasons why this dictatorship is still holding on to power. Can you talk even a little bit more about that, about how dictators you know, consolidate power, stay in power? There is this element of international assistance, I remember, uh, years ago when I was National Security Advisor, when Maduro was going to come to the UN, uh, almost everybody on his manifest was Cuban, except for, except for one advisor. All of his security detail was Cuban. And could you maybe talk about the role of each of these other authoritarian dictatorial regimes, the role that they play in Venezuela, because they're kind of specializing, it seems like, a little bit, and, and then also the role that corruption plays and corrupt networks in keeping dictators in power. Oh, very good. Uh, I, I, it, it's very interesting because, as I said before, um, I, I get the same question asked all the time. Why is Maduro still in power? And again, there are many ways to answer that question, but I, I truly believe that the, the main reason is because of this international support structure that, uh, that the dictatorship has been able to build over the years. And as you said, it's different types of support. 
So we have the Chinese um, giving a, a financial support through lines of credit, the same way they've been deploying this type of uh, dependency from Africa and other countries of, in, in Latin America. You have the Russians that since early uh, in, in the century, they, they started to provide Venezuela with all of the military equipment. So Venezuela that had a, an, an armed forces that were equipped with American and European equipment shifted very rapidly to uh, an armed force uh, equipped by, by Russian uh, machine guns, uh, anti-missile, raiders, tanks, uh, everything. And of course, as you very well know, that comes with training, with exchange. So that right. creates a very a symbiotic relationship yeah. um, that started very early in the, Char in the Chavez regime. Then you have Turkey that has been critical for the support to Maduro in the extraction and the commerce of blood gold, which is one of the main problems that we are facing because it's a destruction to the environment uh, and it has become one of the most violent regions within Venezuela and within the entire American continent. Um, then you have the Iranians providing uh, energy support uh, in order to jumpstart the oil industry in Venezuela or even to provide gasoline to Venezuela, being taken all the way from the Middle East to Venezuela. And, and I want to stop here for a second because many people uh, I hear saying that Venezuela is in the situation that it is because of sanctions. Mm -hmm. So if that were true, how would you explain that a country that was even more sanctioned than Venezuela, such as Iran, was able to provide gasoline from the Middle East all the way to Venezuela? Oh, so, I mean, I think that, that, that gives you an idea that the sanctions are not the problem, um, but then you see the ways in which all of these countries support. Then you have Cuba uh, from the very beginning of the Chavez era, um, providing intelligence support, providing um, especially social control tactics, how to dismantle the democratic fabric of our society, how to create from within our society uh, a spy-oriented yeah. society, you know, the, right. the, the, to the weaponize people, people's weaponize. social networks and even families against any, uh, against their own families. Their own families yeah. I mean, and this was all, and this all happened in a period where many people throughout that period said that is not going to happen. Mm -hmm. I remember many times hearing uh, arguments um, that we were not going to be like Cuba. That Cuba was an island that Venezuela was a strong democracy, that we had a middle class, that we had strong armed forces, that we had universities, that we had a prosperous economy, that we liked free media, that we played baseball, right. and, and that, that were uh, all conditions yeah. that made it very difficult well, for know, Venezuela. You know, Chavez was a left-handed pitcher, though, so I guess yeah. if playing baseball doesn't excuse yeah. you from dictatorship, right? Well, and, 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 and Castro also was, uh, yeah, Castro too, uh, they, they seemed to play baseball. I don't know if they were very good at it, but anyhow, uh, those arguments proved to be completely wrong. I mean, all of that uh, crumbled um, throughout this long period, and then we lost freedom. And, you know, freedom is an abstract until you don't have it. Mm -hmm. So many of the people who might be seeing this program today think of freedom from uh, an abstract uh, position or maybe link freedom to poetry or to political science or to some, you know, legal understanding. Um, I myself, and I can share what my experience was, I understood what freedom was about when I was locked in a two-by-two two cell, not for a week, not for a month, not for a year, but for four years, and then 
for an entire process of seven years of uh, my freedom confined. That's when I, when I really understood what freedom was like, when I was in a two-by-two two cell, not being able to go out of that cell, being completely under the control of the military that were my custody, and in much in the same way uh, has happened to the Venezuelan people. So we can talk with uh, a lot of propriety about what freedom is about. Right. And freedom is not one thing. Freedom is the sum of many things. So freedom is the possibility that you say that you have freedom of speech, but it's also the possibility to choose what type of, of, of study or of work you want to do or to choose that you want to assemble and organize with a certain group of people or uh, to have property. I mean, there are many different ways in which freedom manifests right, in, in, right. In, in, in the fabric of a society. And we started losing one by one all of our freedoms. Right. And, and it was a gradual process until we didn't have freedom, until it became very clear, and this happened in the year uh, 2014 uh, when I was taken to prison and also the, the economic crisis uh, got to a, 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 new, a new stage when Venezuelans started to understand our crisis uh, as the result of a dictatorship. And this is key, because when you were saying at the beginning, seven million Venezuelans have been forced to leave our country, uh, the most dramatic humanitarian tragedy in the entire Western Hemisphere, all of that has a source. Right. All of that uh, is a consequence of a dictatorship, not of a war, not of a, an, an environmental disaster, but because of the ideology of, of, of Chavez and then Maduro. And then comes your other question, you know, corruption. Well, the way in which this system uh, can sustain itself is through corruption and even beyond corruption. Because what happens in Venezuela is the next stage of corruption, which is a kleptocracy. Yeah. A kleptocracy meaning a society that is articulated around the illicit, around uh, corrupt means, uh, around... Um, patronage networks, criminalized yes. patronage networks, yes. right? Where the leaders sit atop of, of those Are, networks. Which is much in the same way organized crime works. Yes. So organized crime or structures are capable of maintaining certain stability within a region, a geography, within groups of people, um, because everybody's invested in, right. in, in, in the corruption. So that's how Maduro and, and has they buy in. They literally buy into it with the absolutely. commoditization of positions and and the diversion of, of and uh, those that resources. don't buy in uh, suffer the consequences. So in the end, unfortunately, our country has become a kleptocracy and our economy has become uh, a, a dark economy, an illicit economy. As you said, over the past eight years, the Venezuelan GDP contracted by more than eighty percent. That is something just so people understand. Uh, during the Spanish Civil War, the GDP contraction was 30%. During World War II, the contraction of the entire European economy was not over 40%. Yeah. So we're talking about the reduction of 80% of our economy in eight years um, without a war, without a disaster, but all provided for uh, from uh, a dictatorship and, and, and the corrupt uh, management of the, of, of the economy. Yeah. I think freedom, to understand freedom, you have to understand that you have to fight for it and, and to keep it. And I think your personal experience is, is a great example of that. And, and uh, I, I think we see this today in Ukraine, obviously, as well, where you have you know, another authoritarian leader, another dictator, uh, who's not only succeeded in extinguishing freedom within Russia, but is now trying to export you know, the, this, uh, his dictatorial regime to, uh, to the Ukrainians, and they're fighting 
desperately and heroically for, for, their, for their freedom. Do you think there's an opportunity for us to regain confidence in democracy? I think in the last couple of years, you know, we've, we've heard a lot of, you know, of uh, lamenting, you know, the, uh, about the erosion of democracy. And, and then you hear some people actually promote authoritarian models that, oh, they're so much more effective, right? Because a leader can just make the decision, everybody falls in line. You often hear this kind of faint praise for the Chinese Communist Party, for example. Uh, what do you, th how do you see the pendulum swinging? Is there an opportunity to galvanize people uh, in defense of democracy and, and, uh, and against uh, authoritarian regimes? Well, I, I, I tell a bit of my personal story. Um, I, I had the, the opportunity, which I'm very grateful of, to study here in the United States during the 1990s. And I remember that was a time of great idealism around democracy and freedom. And it was all about you know, promoting democracy and market economy to, to the entire world. Um, unfortunately, uh, that idealism, um, it's, it's not present anymore up until a week ago or up until 10 days ago. And, and I do believe that uh, the Ukraine the invasion, for the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine um, can uh, signify a new phase of um, willingness and idealism to defend freedom and democracy. Uh, I, I truly hope that that is the case, not just for the fate of the Ukrainian people that deserve all of the, the support from the free world and from the entire world, but also for the fate of the countries like Ukraine that are at the front lines in this fight for freedom. And one of those countries is Venezuela, but there are many others. Nicaragua and Cuba in our continent are also dictatorships. Uh, but then we can talk about Zimbabwe, we can talk about South Sudan, we can talk about Iran, Turkey, Cambodia, Hong Kong. Sure. I mean, there are many places where there is this current struggle um, to fight for freedom uh, that requires the understanding and then the support of the free world. So I think these last 10 days uh, have really created a, a a, a shift in the way the, the, the world is understanding this confrontation of autocracy versus freedom, autocracy versus democracy. I mean, it, it's, it's being laid out in the faces of everybody with bombs, killings, uh, with mass murders, with war crimes. So, I mean, this is no conspiracy theory anymore. This is not something that, that is being discussed or to be discussed in think tanks or universities because people are understanding some signs that are being presented. This is, you know, this has exploded in the face of everybody. And I think that the free world uh, needs to come to the realization that freedom and democracy need to be defended. And, and I believe that this is also, and I hope that this is an opportunity um, to have, at least in foreign policy, a, a common and bipartisan defense. And I think that is happening. And I'm very happy to see that that is happening, that everybody's closing lines in the same way without the polarization and differences. To, to defend freedom and democracy. And it, it, it's very important that the Americans and that the United States understands and, and the people from the United States that you do have a responsibility uh, to be the beacon of freedom and democracy to the rest of the planet. I mean, and that's not an imperialistic uh, uh, responsibility because I, don't, I think that that's an argument that many times creates uh, some sort of insecurities within the Americans that you don't want to assume the responsibility to promote freedom because some people believe that, that, you know, that that's an imperialistic approach to the rest of the world. But even for your own survival as a free country, you need to understand that you need to promote and defend freedom elsewhere. Oh, and, that's and that's being played out very clearly in, in Ukraine. But we also, from countries like Venezuela, and I can speak for 
uh, the people who want freedom from Cuba, from Nicaragua, and from many other countries, that we need the understanding and the support of the free world in order for us to become free nations as well. Yeah. And you know, these dictators and authoritarian regimes, they, they use fear, right, to establish the control. But I think that they are very fearful themselves, right? And I think you, you see this in, in obviously their extinguishment of human freedom because they're afraid that if people can express themselves freely, if they can, if they demand a say in how they're governed, that they won't be able to survive. And then also I think you see it in this, in the statement that we were talking about, the recent statement between Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping just prior to the Olympics, where they, they used the term color revolution, that we're going to ally together and work against color revolutions, which of course refers to the many revolutions that happened uh, across the, the, the former territories of the Soviet Union uh, and, and in, uh, in, in Central Asia uh, and in Eastern Europe uh, associated with people who were demanding freedom, who wanted to be unshackled from either the Soviet Empire or from authoritarian regimes that, that, uh, that emerged after the breakup of the Soviet Union. So. What are your thoughts about this? Do you think dictators are fearful of, of the people? And what might be done to, to kind of galvanize uh, the popular movements against authoritarian regimes? Well, I, I, I think it's very clear that they are fearful. I mean, they, as you very well said, I mean, they actually uh, made a public statement in writing that they declared the color revolutions, meaning the movements for freedom, because that's what the color revolutions are, are the movements of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in countries as different for like uh, Hong Kong, Nicaragua, Venezuela, Iran, um, where, where they, people have taken the streets to call for freedom. And uh, China and Russia have identified these movements as one of their main enemies. So if, if this is the case, I believe that we need to understand better what these uh, color revolutions or freedom movements uh, are like, how they work, how they can be more successful and how to promote them because they're absolutely necessary. Um, I don't think that there is one answer in how freedom can be achieved uh, in countries that are today under autocracies, but I do believe that one necessary condition is that people are mobilized in the streets. I mean, there are other things that can contribute to making political change happen, but that is one necessary condition. So, so I believe that, uh, that we need to do more to understand what these movements are like and, and, how to, uh, and how to promote them. Because it's very clear that Xi Jinping and Putin have identified this, um, this, this type of movement as the enemies of the autocrats. And the other aspect that I believe is very key to understand is that autocracies work together. Yeah. They work as a network. And many people might be, could say, skeptical and say, well, you might be exaggerating. That's a conspiracy theory. Yeah. Well, I, we can prove Venezuela. It all comes together in Venezuela, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, Venezuela. I mean, Venezuela is a showcase of this. In right. other countries, it might be more, more disguised. It might be, yeah. you know, more, more hidden. But in the case of Venezuela, it's, it's, it's very open. And you see it in this collaboration that I was describing before. But also you see it very clearly in the statements that these countries make uh, in um, instances like the UN Security Council, mm -hmm. uh, like the UN Human Rights Council, right. and like many other international multilaterals where you see that they, they not only vote together, but they argue pretty much with the same words. Right. So uh, it, it, it's a very clear um, example. And, and the, the words are actually reversed in meaning. 
Right? Yeah, so when Xi Jinping be, talks about democracy, democracy right, you think authoritarianism. When he talks about rule of law, right, he's talking about arbitrary detention and, and the absence of due process of law. No, absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and these countries are actually working in a networked way. And then in the free world, up until 10 days ago, I, I, I believe uh, that, that the changes of the Russian invasion to Ukraine are significant and it has, it's going to affect the, the entire planet. Uh, but, but up until 10 days ago, there was a lot of skepticism as to if these countries were actually working in a network way. And I think that there are a lot of economic interests that they didn't want to put all of these countries in, in, in the same block because of the type of economic interdependency that exists between the West and China and, 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 and these countries that creates very, very, very difficult problems. I mean, how, how to decouple the U.S. economy from China? I mean, it's an issue that a lot of people are thinking and researching about, but that is something that, that also creates a level of dependency in order to maintain, in a way, the stability to China. So uh, I think that the most important thing is to realize that, one, yes, this is a this an axis of uh, autocrats that are working together, that are promoting the expansion of, uh, of autocracy. And in that same way, I believe that this, the free world, but particularly the leaders and movements that are in the front lines of freedom, we need to come together, work together uh, to support each other, feed each other, and, and, and to um, have... Um, a, a face to fight for, for freedom in each one of our countries because today the freedom of Venezuela is not going to come only with what we do in Venezuela. That's the most important thing. Right. But it's also going to come um, because of the things that are done outside Venezuela. Yes. To isolate Maduro from some of the support that he's getting from other authoritarian dictators. And you know, I, I'm, I'm really concerned these days, and if the reports are correct, that we're about to give the Iranians a lot of resources here with the alleviation of sanctions for another really weak uh, nuclear agreement. And I wondered if you if you might uh, share your thoughts on how the, the competition with Iran's theocratic dictatorship and the potential alleviation of sanctions and the windfall that could be for Iran, how that's bad for the world uh, and Venezuela, maybe in particular. Well, what what I think that is very dangerous is that 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 um, a decision like that undermines the fact that Iran is also part of this autocracy network. So um, by 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 opening a financial um, leverage to to Iran, in a way, it's also giving them the possibility of continuing to feed this autocracy expansion right. elsewhere. But the, uh, the largest state sponsor terrorists too. By the no, way. absolutely, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And, and uh, I mean, this is another discussion, but if the discussion uh, is, is because of the need for Iran to produce and to include more of their production in the international market of oil, um, well, I think that there are alternatives to that, like the... Like uh, the U.S.? Like the U.S. <laughs> in itself. I mean, and, and, right. uh, and I think it's... Uh, or, or places like Venezuela without Maduro. Sure. I mean, yeah. Venezuela has the largest reserves of oil in the entire planet, and Venezuela is called to be the, the reliable source of fossil fuels for the Western Hemisphere. That means oil and gas, um, but that is not happening because Maduro is there. So that's another strategic reason why there needs to be a lot of pressure uh, in order to bring about political change. And, and let me be clear about this. People in Venezuela want political change because I don't want to be misunderstood as, uh, as, as we are claiming for, you know, an, an external power come 
and make about political change uh, in a way that benefits an external power and not the Venezuelan people. The Venezuelan people, as the Nicaraguans and the Cubans, want political change to happen in a super majoritarian way. More than 80% of the Venezuelans not only reject Maduro, but despise him and want him out. So, so could you share with our viewers, what do you think the future of Venezuela is? What's your, what's your hope for Venezuela? How can you envision it happening? I know it's very difficult to predict. And, you know, I, I think many people thought, how, how the heck can Maduro still be in power, right? After the effect of economic sanctions and so forth. Uh, and, and, and how bad, right, that he's mismanaged the economy. It's really not the effect of sanctions, as you mentioned. It's really he's destroyed the economy himself. I mean, the healthcare system. I mean, people are, are really destitute uh, across, across the country. And, and, of course, there was a COVID crisis on top of that. And, and, and uh, Venezuelans had a really hard time getting, uh, getting medical care or even basic you know, ph pharmaceuticals necessary and therapeutic uh, you know, treatments. So what, what, what do you see the future of the country and, 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 uh, and how can you see a path to a, to a, better, uh, a better future for the Venezuelan people? Well, I, I have a bias when I, when I answer that question because I, I cannot answer in, uh, from a position that I am not. I am not a journalist and I'm not an academic. I am not a researcher. So I am I'm an activist for freedom. So in order for me to wake up every day and be hopeful about what I do, I need to foresee the future as a hopeful future for my country. So if you ask me, how do you see the future of Venezuela? I, I see the future of Venezuela as a democracy, as a prosperous democracy, as a country that has learned uh, the lessons of, of uh, living under autocracy, a country that respects the rights for all the people, a pluralistic country, uh, respectful of the rule of law, full of opportunities for our young people. I see a country where millions of people seek to return to our country to rebuild uh, a country that is called to be a strong democracy and a prosperous economy in, in the continent. Uh, you may say, well, that's wishful thinking. Yes, of course it is, but that's what humankind needs in order to move forward. You need to, you need, you need to be hopeful in order to move forward. What's the path to get there? I think that the best path that we can, that, that we can construct in order to get there in a peaceful way is through free and fair elections. So how to get to free and fair elections is, in my view, uh, by creating all of the conditions, pressures and incentives to the regime in order to have a, a, a free and fair election, or at least much freer and much fairer than the elections that we've had uh, in the past. And, and, the, and the restoration of the Constitution, right? No, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, how do you see the, the trends in the region? You would think, right, you would think that the people in the region would, would learn from the negative example of Venezuela, right? The failure of, of uh, Chavismo and, and, uh, and the authoritarian socialist model. But it seems like the trends are toward illiberalism in, in the region. I, you know, I think the, the recent Peruvian election is a little bit concerning, right? You have a cult of personality around the leader of, of Salvador. You know, you mentioned Nicaragua already. Uh, President Lopez Obrador in Mexico seems to be trying to take over institution by institution, almost in a model like, like uh, we saw uh, Erdogan do in, in Turkey. Are you concerned about the trends in the hemisphere toward illiberalism? How do you explain it? Why is it happening? And what might be done to reverse it? Well, I think what the, the accurate way to understand this is not to, um, to, to, to place the, the, the axis or the pendulum between right and left. Because yeah. many times I hear analysts uh, talking about Latin America, that all Latin America is, is moving you know, towards the left. And, and, and I think it's not much along the lines of right-left. Yeah, uh, Brazil is another example. Well, right, that's yeah, that, right, that's yeah. my point. Yeah. So 
what, what's really happening is that there is increasing tension between autocracy and democracy. And, and you have countries that, were, that have leaders that were voted in uh, from the right and from the left who are moving towards autocracy and are moving far away from democracy. And you ask, why is this happening? I think that uh, it's happening mainly because there is a an, um, lack of delivering from democratic regimes. So I think that w w one of the things that, uh, that are urgent is to build up the capacity for democracies to deliver for the people. Because you cannot defend democracy as an abstract. You cannot defend democracy from, from political science theory. I mean, you can do that, but you can do that massively, and hey, you're not going to... You're, you're talking to a historian, so I'm already <laughs> deeply skeptical of political science, so, so I'm with uh, you. <laughs> so, so I think that the, 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 way, the, way to, uh, to, the, the best way to defend democracy is democracy delivering to the needs of the people. Yeah. And I think that there is, a, you know, that there is a, a lot to do along those lines. And, and I think that's why populations, entire countries, are prey to uh, arguments of autocrats and, and, the, and the ways of autocrats in the way they dismantle the rule of law, dismantle and undermine institutions, uh, create divisions within, within our societies. So I, I, I think that the real challenge, and again, Ukraine and the crisis is an opportunity for that, is to put in the front line of a discussion, what are we going to do to promote freedom and democracy as an ideal? We need to put um, soul, we need to put enthusiasm, we need to place the, the, uh, the excitement around these ideals that I think have been fading away over the past years. And, and, and maybe this crisis that has exploded in our faces uh, makes everybody realize that freedom is something that needs to be a world movement like the movement for the environment that is something that is worldwide, that you have you know, kids going to school, going back to their homes and telling their parents that they need to recycle. Well, we need that same level of penetration yeah. to, of the ideas of freedom. We need excitement, idealism, enthusiasm yeah. around why we need to promote freedom and right. democracy. And if, if you're looking for heroes or people to emulate, you can look to the Ukrainians who are fighting for freedom. Absolutely. And I think you can look to your life. And I'd like to just end with a question about your, you know, your personal experience and, and, uh, and the hardships that you and your family endured. You were in prison for seven years. Uh, could you maybe tell our viewers a little bit how you maintained your strength? I mean, obviously, you're still an optimistic, energetic person. Uh, what can you tell us about, about your personal experience? Well, I was, uh, I, I was mayor of my city in Caracas, the capital of Caracas, for, for eight years. Uh, I was elected and re-elected, and then I was going to, um, uh, to go for the governorship of the metropolitan area, and I was disqualified to run for office. So after being unemployed because I was disqualified to run for office, we were going to win. Uh, we um, articulated a movement, put together a movement, uh, to promote freedom through nonviolence and civil resistance. The movement was called, uh, is called People's Will. In the year 2014, we called for street protests, um, nonviolent street protests, and tens of thousands of people came out to the streets, and that's what took me to prison. So I spent uh, four years in a military prison. I was trialed and sentenced to 14 years in prison. Uh, the, the argument that they used was that I was giving speeches that were nonviolent in the wording, but that they were sending subliminal messages to the Venezuelan people in order to behave violently. 
And because of that reasoning, the judge um, uh, sentenced me to 14 years in prison. Uh, in 2017, I was taken back to, uh, to house arrest. Um, being in house arrest, I called uh, publicly for the people to go out to the streets. This they, is when they, I was supposed to call you on the that's phone. Right. We had a phone call arranged during that period. That's right. And then they took me back to, they took me back to prison, uh, then back to house arrest. Then in the year 2019, I was uh, freed by, uh, by my captors, um, the military and the police. And I seek refuge in the Spanish embassy where I stayed for, for a year and a half. Uh, and a year ago, I escaped from Venezuela and I've been living in exile uh, since then. And, and you asked me, you know, what was it like to be in prison? And, and everybody has their own personal experience when they go through this. Mine was very solitary. Most of the time I was under solitary confinement. Uh, I had read a lot about people that have gone through experiences in prison. Um, I was able to prepare myself in a way with the experiences from others. And I took uh, a lesson that was very common in everything that I read that was you need to have a routine when you're in prison. Um, and I put together my own personal routine, which was um, oh, heart, mind, and, and soul. Uh, uh, so I would pray every day. Um, I'm a Catholic, but like many Catholics, mechanical. You know, I was baptized. I went through my first communion. But, uh, you know, a Holy Mary or a, or a Holy Father, when you're in time of need or times of, 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 um, of, uh, of fears. Uh, but in prison, I had a, a very, very intense uh, spiritual um, experience. So I would pray every day. I, I feel blessed that I, have, that I had that experience. Um, then the other thing that I would do is I would try to read as much as I could or write as much as I could or do some sort of intellectual exercise and I would do physical exercise. All of that in my cell. But I would do that with sport and discipline every day. Um, so my days were winning the day. And every day I went to bed thinking that I had done something to improve my, my condition that day. And, and not being hostage of thinking of the expectation of when I was going to be freed. Because I saw other political prisoners falling into that trap that they were always very anxious that they were going to be freed next week, next month or two months from them. Uh, and then when that, the time came and they continued to be in prison, that led to depression. Sure. So I saw a lot of people being depressed, uh, chronically depressed in prison. Uh, and, and I knew that the, the, that the, the battleground, to, to put it, or battlefield, uh, to put it in the context of this program, of my fight was no longer the streets, but it was my head and, 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 my, and my, my heart uh, and, and my uh, psychological stability. So I tried to take care of that as much as I could have. Well, I'm going to get you a book here from our, from our collection here at Hoover by, uh, by James Stockdale, you know, who was, uh, who was an admiral who was imprisoned in, 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 uh, in the Hanoi Hilton for a long time. And, and he was a student of Stoic philosophy. And, and he's been a real inspiration to me and, and, uh, and you're an inspiration to me as well. Leopoldo, thank you so much for no, being thank here. thank you. And thanks, thanks for joining us on Battlegrounds on behalf of the Hoover Institution. Thank it's you. It's been a real honor. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you very thank much. You. Thanks. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.